you have a Bible tonight, we're going to read one scripture verse. Call your attention to tonight. It's found in the book of Luke chapter 19. The book of Luke chapter 19. And this one verse is at the end of the story that we all know. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus, probably one of the first ones that we learn. And, um, of course, he went to see Jesus and climbed up a tree, and Jesus called him down and came to his house, and he was saved. And in the previous verse, that's what Jesus tells Zacchaeus in verse 9 of Luke 19. He said, today salvation has come to your house. And um, then he adds to that. Verse 10, and that's going to be the focus of our attention tonight, if the Lord will help us to bring these thoughts out this evening. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, says this, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that'll conclude our reading tonight. And if we had a title for our message this evening, it is, Jesus wants to save you. Jesus wants to save you. As I was thinking about the scripture and this truth that we want to try to bring before you tonight, um, I want to caution people tonight to begin our message this evening um, about a vulnerability that we can open in our hearts. And that is, when unrealized expectations happen, it can lead our hearts to dangerous places. Or in other words, when we expect things to happen, when we believe within all, all of ourselves, if you're lost or you're saved tonight, we hear a word preached, we hear a truth spoken, and we act upon that. And we respond. And we've been given assurances that if we do, this will happen. And then for whatever reason, the thing that we're expecting to happen doesn't happen. Those moments following those unrealized expectations are very dangerous in the human heart. I believe Satan preys on those people and those moments in our lives. Because when we're experiencing God's blessing and our faith becomes sight, when our faith is the size of a mustard seed or even greater, and we really believe the Lord and we have confidence in Him, it is difficult for Satan's lies to persuade us of falsehood. Because when he whispers those things to us, we just point and say, well, yeah, what about that? And we can dispel his lies by those realities that are around us and that are recent. But I think in today's age, within this prolonged period of time since Churches have, with regularity, seen people saved. 
with regularity, seeing the movement of the Holy Spirit. We know in days gone by, both in this church and in biblical times and all throughout history, that the Holy Spirit was much more active, much more noticeable in his saving power and saw displays of people by the dozens get saved. And we listen to those stories and they seem so long ago. And then we look at the situation today and we see fewer being saved. And it can cause our minds to then doubt in the possibility or the probability that God can or will save. Let me tell you something that I do to guard against unrealized expectations. I go back to the promises of God. Now please hear me tonight. If you're saved and you're despondent or discouraged, let me ask you this question. When's the last time that you went back and reaffirmed God's promises? Why is devotional reading so important every day? Because a good devotion takes you back to the promise. Reaffirms in you. Yes, this is true. Even when my heart is attempting to deceive me. And so tonight I want to just take one promise. That your heart, that Satan, that the environment around you may be subconsciously or maybe even consciously screaming at you that God doesn't want to save you. That I've seen people before, lost people before, be so discouraged that they begin to wonder, is all of this fake? I've seen saved people get that discouraged before. Where they've gone so long since they have seen a movement of the Spirit And Satan preys on those moments of weakness in our hearts. And we begin to step back in in this weak moment that we're all susceptible to. We ask, have I invested my life in vain? Is this church, which is just a small remnant of people, are we really true? Is it really right? And I want to affirm a single promise today. God wants to save you. God wants, listen to me, God wants to save you. Please hear me tonight, I'm going to say it again. God wants to save you. He really wants to save you. Now as we consider the events of this world, we live in an active time. We live in a time where we're inundated with information and people are busied about beyond imagination. And even in your life, you have things that pull you and push you from one direction to the other. And it may seem like in this busy, hurry-up world that has, uh, it seems like a crescendo of events every week that we ought to pay attention to and things that are demanding our attention. I want you to know that God is not pre occupied with all of those perceivably important things. God is not more concerned with the affairs of the White House or more concerned with the affairs in Ukraine and Russia. God is not more concerned with the state of the economy. God is not worried about perhaps a stadiums full of people who have created some Issue of importance to which they all gather and they, uh, they give their attention and their effort and their money to. God is not preoccupied with those things. 
God has a singular focus with the people in this world, and that is that all men would come to know Him. That's what God wants. Leaders rise and fall. Nations rise and fall. Sparrows hatch, fly, and fall. And God notices all of it. But you are more valuable than many sparrows. You are more valuable than the downfall of nations. Your soul, is, your soul is more valuable than all the money and circulation and wealth that can be accumulated. Your soul is more important than all of that. Satan, in our own deceptive hearts, you know, I, I think, I, I want to be balanced how I say this. Satan is real. His demons are real. They have power. How much? I don't know. What exactly the weapons of their warfare are? I know some of them as they're revealed in scriptures, but I don't know all of them. And I have no doubt that his ultimate desire, oh, I think he tries to persuade the governments of men, but he's not looking to overthrow America just to take away liberty. That's not his end goal. He's not looking to overthrow nations and create wars just because he wants to see the red team win and the the blue team lose. No, what he is after in interfering in all of those things is the deception and eventual eternal destruction of men's souls. That's what he wants. And so he sometimes comes as a crafty serpent into the gardens of our lives. And he tries to deceive and he tries to whisper things that are lies. And other times he comes as a roaring lion when he's convinced that he can pounce at the proper moment and devour us. And he uses everything in his arsenal to attack, be it things at a collective level or things at the individual level of your heart. He uses all of it. And he has a helper to hurt you. And that helper is your own heart. Why does sometimes Satan win people? It's because he's whispering to us what we want to hear. We love sin. We love darkness. We love self. And all of Satan's promises are filled with those things that would ultimately give us what our sinful flesh wants. And so he whispers these things into our hearts. And part of us screams, amen, amen, I want that. And then the word of God comes. And the Bible tells us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder even soul and spirit and dividing uh, the joint from the marrows. 
that God's word comes and as Satan and as our own hearts are telling us what we want to hear, the word of God comes and it pierces those things. And it says, those things are lies. Those things are not true. You are sinful. You need a savior. The Bible teaches us the law came that the offense might abound. Or in other words, God sent his law into the world that you might be cognizant of and aware of your own sin. It reveals our nakedness. It reveals shame and guilt. But praise be to God. The Bible teaches us in the book of John chapter 3 verse 17. God came not into the world to condemn the world. That's not his ultimate purpose in coming to the world. No, God's condemnation or God's declaration of future judgment was meant to drive us to our need for a Savior. So when you feel convicted of sin, when you're in a service and the Word of God goes out and you're pricked in your heart and God's saying, guilty, guilty, or when the pains of hell get hold upon you and you find trouble and sorrow and death begins to terrify you, all of those things are God's grace screaming at you that where you're at is insufficient and God has a Savior and a better way. But that way requires for me to come to the gate of repentance, of humiliation. Jesus was humiliated, and I'm sorry for that. I wish Jesus never would have had to have been humiliated, but he was. And when a person is lost and seeking after God, don't you realize that the conviction of sin is our share of the sufferings for our own sin? That we are sharing the condemnation of guilt that Jesus bore on our behalf. And God is allowing us to feel the weight of our own sin. Amen. You're not, so let me put it this way. God is not through his Holy Spirit unloading a weight on you that you don't already deserve. God is merely letting you feel the weight that you do deserve. He's bringing to life the just condemnation that you deserve. And so when you try to distract yourself and free your conscience that preaches at you the guilt that you have, God through his Holy Spirit says, I will not let you escape this truth. You must confront the reality of your own sin. Jesus did not come to bring condemnation. He didn't send his law to ultimately bring condemnation. He sent it that we might have life. That it might drive us to him as a savior. Jesus also did not come to be served. Now that is mind boggling. God came in the flesh. Now, important people, the Bible teaches us in the book of James. The nature of people who are perceivably important is they tend to expect better treatment. So if the president came to your house, he would expect to be treated like an honored guest. And perhaps it would be just and right of us to do that. But his expectation would be that he's heralded. 
that he's welcomed, that we've cleaned our house, that we've prepared our best. And yet the president in the sight of God is nobody. And yet God came to earth. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Matthew chapter 20 that he came not to be served, but to serve. So Jesus did not come to condemn you and ultimately cast you into eternal judgment in hell. God did not come solely or, or primarily to just be worshipped or to be served while he walked in this world. He came to serve mankind. There are some other things that Jesus did during his life which are significant and important. We read in the scriptures that he came and he established his church. And that was a very important thing that he came to do. That the church is the means by which the proclamation of the gospel goes out. Or in other words, if we were not here doing this, how would you know where you stand with God? The means by which God designed for you to hear the gospel in this age is through his local body. That's why it's the most important institution in all the world. Because it brings the good news that no other institution carries. Jesus came. He healed people. You know, I think today there are religious people who... They've completely misunderstood why Jesus healed people. Because they say, you know, Jesus was a good guy and he loved people, so he healed people. Well, Jesus was a good guy and he did heal people because he loved people, but there was a greater reason why. You see, everything Jesus did on earth when he would heal a blind man. You know, Jesus actually remarks, and we've learned this as we've studied through the Gospel of John on Wednesday nights, that there were times when Jesus said it was a good thing that I didn't go to Bethany and Lazarus died. It was a good thing. Or remember in John chapter 9 with the blind man. It was a good thing that he was born blind. They asked him, they said, why is this man born blind? Is it because of his own sin or his parents? And he said, neither. But that the work of God should be made manifest in him. Or in other words, Jesus said, I let this man go through what he went through so that I could heal him. So that in healing him, you that are unbelievers might see what Jesus can do and thus believe as a result of his healing. And Jesus does the same thing today. He allows tragedy to unfold in our life. He allows hardship to occur in the lives of those we love. He allows us to be born in unfortunate circumstance, at times beaten down and broken, that when God then intervenes in our brokenness, we can see the light of Jesus Christ and turn to Him. The world will have us become victims to our circumstance. They'll have us focus on all the inequities and inequalities that we experience, never considering the fact that maybe God designed the inequality for their welfare. That in that inequality, they might look to heaven and say, God, rescue me from this unfairness. Rescue me from my circumstance. I need help. And that in seeking him, they would find him. See, Jesus came and he set up a church. 
and he healed people. And he was a good example for us. You know, people today, they... I, Again, I want to be careful how I say this. Sometimes I despise the way that people talk about Jesus in the mainstream media. Even people who are supposedly supporters of Christianity. Because the problem is they depict him insufficiently. He's a good moral guy. He taught good moral truths. He came and did wonderful things that we ought to follow. And if we practically and pragmatically implement the, the, the principles that he brought, then we will be better off. Thus, as a nation, it behooves us to follow Christian principles because then we will be better off. That's all wrong. That's all wrong. Right? It's right in the sense that, yes, it benefits us. But Jesus was a lot more than just a good, moral, principled guy. Amen. He was more than a philosopher that just crossed the T's and dotted the I's that might help the nation. Jesus is God. And he tells us here that though he came and gave us a good example, though he came and he did heal people, though he did come and establish a church, though he did not come to condemn people, he came for a reason that, the, that, that Jesus himself speaks here that is so plain and clear. The Bible says he came to seek and save sinners that are lost. Amen. That is why he came. He came to save you. And because his focus is upon saving you, do not believe the lie that God is somehow preoccupied with something else or removing his grace or for some reason doesn't want to save you. No, rather he came just to save you. And so, what lie are you believing tonight? What thing have you been convinced of? That you think, you know, I just don't think he can. I don't think he will. And with that faith, he won't. What he wants, is it's impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For they that come to God must believe that he is. This isn't all fake. That Jesus isn't some old figure from history. That he's real. And that he can really be in our midst. In testimony today, one of the brothers said, I prayed that the Lord would be here, and he is here. Emmanuel, usually reserved for Christmas, talking about Jesus coming in the flesh. Listen, Emmanuel is just as real today as it was back then through his Holy Spirit. God can be with us. And think about this. If God, at one point, condescended from heaven and took upon himself this earthly flesh, and lived here for 33 years and suffered persecution and torture and rejection, rose again, ascended to the Father, sent His Spirit, and now His Spirit has decided of His own accord to be in our midst. For what purpose do you think He would come here? Why would, you, why would the Spirit of God... 
manifest himself. Now, you, you might say, and I've heard people get all messed up in the semantics of those kind of statements. And listen, I know that I'm saved and that God's Holy Spirit dwells within me. But, and I take him everywhere that I go. But when I say that God, the Holy Spirit, is here, what I'm meaning by that is that he manifests himself, that we can sense his presence, and that he is at work in the hearts of men. That's what that means. And so when you see and you hear, that's why when brothers and sisters get up and they testify or they say, the Lord is telling me to sing this song or to say these things, you ought to pay close attention because God the Holy Spirit has condescended from heaven and he has decided of his own accord to come and manifest in this place and to speak to the hearts of men and you are one of those. God loves you. That's why he speaks here. He doesn't speak just so we can feel good for 30 minutes and then walk out the door. God speaks that he might do the work of redemption in the heart of a lost man or woman. And seal them and finish that eternal work. He says he came, and I love how this, for the Son of Man has come to seek. I remember reading one time. I don't think it was about this scripture, but it was one that teaches the same truth about the profundity of that thought of God seeking. I've heard here recently of a whole lot of people who had some kind of dire illness and they're desperately trying to get into St. Thomas in Nashville. And they're desperately trying to get into Vanderbilt. And they're desperately trying to get into the Mayo Clinic. And they're desperately trying to go to all these experts and all of these people. And oftentimes the result is, no, I'm sorry, we don't have space. No, I'm sorry, we have other people that are more pressing concern that we have to see. And so very often today, those that are important, those that have power, those that have a need for their services, have to push people away because of all the people that are crowding them. And so, first of all, to consider the fact that Jesus doesn't push people away. His disciples did. In their ignorance, those kids wanted to come up and see him. Suffer the little children to come to me. What was it the blind man that Brother Luke quoted about today? Blind Bartimaeus. Crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, thou son of David. They said, be quiet. And all the more he cried out, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. That unclean woman wasn't allowed to touch anybody. For 12 years had been unclean. And she pressed through the crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. And Jesus stopped, thronged by the crowd on his way to perform another miracle. Jesus stopped and took time for her. See, Jesus is a man that condescends beyond our comprehension. Or that means he lowers himself to our level beyond anything you can imagine. He's not too important for you. God loves you. Jesus came to seek you. So think of this. Not only does he not turn people away, but he allows them to come to him. Wouldn't that be enough? But how many of you get a personal phone call from your family doctor that says, you know what, I haven't seen you in a while. I just want to make sure you're doing okay. Doctors don't do that, do they? No. They're preoccupied. The Son of Man came and seeks people out. <laughs> like He comes looking for you. 
He comes and wants to find you. And so wherever you are at, and I've heard just incredible stories of people drunk and addicted to alcohol, people as sinful of places that you can possibly go. And God goes, and in those dark, dark places where the only time his name is spoken is when it is cursed, is when it's the butt of a joke. Those are the only times that his name is spoken in those places. And yet God will often condescend himself to go to those places to speak to the hearts of men. I remember very often where he would speak to me when I was just a, a child. Whenever I was lost, the first time God told me I was lost, I was in a bathroom in a public school. Brokenhearted about a parent's, my parents' divorce. And God came and he spoke to me there. I remember on revival nights where God would often speak to me. Whenever I was lost, sometimes, and my mom was just telling me about how rebellious I was just the other day. I didn't remember all these details. She said, for a lot of the times that you would lost, I would look over and you would just be gripping the pew. And when she said that, I remembered it. I hadn't remembered it until then, but I remembered that. We had these really smooth pews at Bethel and I'd scratch the paint off. Don't do that, right? I'd take there and I'd just take my nail and I'd scratch the paint off whenever the altar call was going. I'd just hold on to the back of those pews. And sometimes I was successful and I'd make it home. And I would reject God. You know, like... The doctor would call and I would say, no thanks. And he would say, but you're sick. And I would say, no, I don't don't want anything. I'm good. I'm okay. And I'd go home. And I'd lay in my bed. And that's so often where God would speak to me. I couldn't escape. Without his loving presence reminding me, you need me. He sought me out and he found me. That's the best part. He came to seek, but he doesn't just come to seek to so that we can again have good services, although we do. He didn't seek to preoccupy his time. He seeks with a clear and definitive intent. He seeks you out to save you. The Bible teaches us, how do I know it's you? Because I said God wants you to be saved. Because the scriptures are replete with truth that teaches us that God does not desire any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He told us in the book of Timothy, he said this, Who will have all men to be saved... And to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants to save you. Don't doubt that. If you've sought for a long time, don't doubt God wants to save you. If tonight this is the first time that you're feeling God's pricking, I want you to know you don't have to seek for a long time. There's no process. Somebody said it yesterday or this morning. I can't remember. There's not a process. It was Sister April. There's no process to be saved. You don't have to uh, come to this bench a hundred times and now on the hundred and first time. That's when you get it. You don't have to. When God draws you, he draws with the intent to save you. Right, right then, right there, God wants to save you. Man. 
And so if part of you never sought the Lord publicly and you say, you know what, I don't want to go through that process. Well, I don't want you to either. And guess what? God doesn't want you to either. He wants you to surrender at that moment and he'll grant you eternal life forever. Amen. And he'll do that here. And as Brother Luke quoted the scripture in Corinthians just the other night, he'll do it now. Now is the acceptable time to come to him. And so let's ask this question as we get a song together. Is God convicting you right now? I mean, I don't need any outward sign. You don't have to raise your hand or stand up. You don't have to do anything. I want you to just answer the question to yourself and to God. Is God convicting you right this moment? And if he is, I will assure you of this singular promise. He's doing it to save you now. Amen. That's the only reason he's doing it, is to save you now. I pray you'll seek the Lord. Sister Ashley, let's have a song. Jesus wants to save you, and he will if you'll call out to him tonight. If you feel the convicting of the Holy Spirit, come seek the Lord. I plead with you to come and to seek after God that you might be saved tonight.